Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back, everybody, to The Basement Binge, an episode that I have been anticipating for what feels like years. Okay, you saw the title. This is like the second kind of episode I've done on this movie, Dune. I did an IMAX, like an IMAX event reaction that I went to. I've been talking about this movie forever, it feels like. I am beyond excited to be talking about Dune. It's a book that I fell in love with because of the movie. I, I can't claim to have been a fan of the movie for like, or, or excuse me, the book for years. I, Denis Villeneuve is my favorite director. So like three or four years ago, I saw he was directing this movie. Maybe it was just three years ago. Uh, so then I decided to read the book in preparation for the movie. And then it was delayed and it was delayed and it was delayed. So it, it, when I was driving to the theater, I looked at my wife and said, it doesn't even feel real. Like, I don't even feel like I'm about to go see this movie. Like it's it just, anyway. So if you don't know anything about Dune, if you just went and saw the movie, just as an example, this is an intense book. It's like 500 and something pages that's divided into three different sections. And it is such an intense book with its own world building that it comes with appendages to the book itself for you to understand it. There's like three different appendixes, one of them just on the Bene Gesserit Sisterhood, one on the ecology of Dune, another one that's just a glossary so you can look up the definitions of words in the book that are brand new to you, and maps and pictures, like, like the density of this book is so intense. So I was intrigued, sitting in the theater, I was sitting there watching things, thinking, oh yeah, that, they took something out of the book, or that wasn't in the book, or, or they changed it, or, or whatever, and thinking, oh, they probably had to do that so people who haven't read the book understood. So, so, so much of my viewing experience was trying to understand what it would be like to watch this movie having not read the book. So because of that, I just had to invite someone to be here with me to be able to actually present that perspective. Listeners of The Basin Binge are no stranger to him. It is Matt. Matt goes to the movies. So go ahead and introduce yourself, Matt. I'm so grateful you're here. Hi, Harrison. Hi, listeners. Um, I, I don't know if you're as excited as I am to actually be here because <laughs> the only reason I watched this movie in the first place was because of your IMAX review. Uh, I'll be honest, I did not care um, really about Dune. It was something that was like, I'm sure I'll eventually get to it. Um, it's a movie and I like them. But the passion that you displayed in talking about that 10 minute preview that you had for Dune made me say, well, this is something I have to check out immediately because <laughs> there was just so again, I'll use it. There was so much passion behind what you saw and how you felt. I said, yeah, I, I got to check this out. And boy, I'm I'm almost biting my tongue because I don't want to say anything else because I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah, well, well, we will just jump immediately into it because I, I I'm excited to talk about the movie. I've been dwelling on it. I saw it last night and I yeah, anyway, I have so much to say. <laughs> so, so briefly, I'll let you kind of introduce your show, Matt Goes to the Movies, for anybody who doesn't know your show, and then we'll get into the first segment. 
Yeah, thanks. I, uh, you know, I like Harrison said gracefully. I am Matt. Um, I do Matt goes to the movies for the podcast, and it has been a ton of fun. The basement binge was the inspiration to do a podcast, and I talk about movies. I've just done a couple episodes on uh, Halloween Kills. I did one for Halloween 2018 to freshen up. We've done things together like Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and it's it's just a lot of fun to interact with people that you don't even know, um, but hear their opinions. It's it's great. So I'm super excited to do this and get into Dune. Yeah, I am extremely excited as well to be here with Matt because I'm just excited to talk, to talk about Dune. For what I want to get into the segments here, but just to talk about my theater experience really quick. So recently, the last two movies I've seen in theaters, if my memory serves me right, was No Time to Die, the new James Bond movie, and then Dune. And both times, I was really excited to talk about other people who are excited to be in the theater watching the movie. I went to early show times, like as early as were available in my area. So clearly, the people who were there were also excited about the movie. And both times, I sat next to a total stranger and tried to interact with him. And they just like would not talk to me. Like they would (laughs) answer my questions and dismiss me in the same sentence. Like they were just so clickish. And uh, so then I was like, I just I can't wait to talk to Matt. Like he will actually talk to me. So (laughs) I've been looking forward to this for for like legitimately twenty four hours. Anyway, let's get into the first segment here. Two cents. So two cents is absolutely spoiler free. So if you're listening to this episode and you haven't seen the film, we won't spoil anything for you. but we're just going to give our knee-jerk reaction to the film, um, and we'll go from there. I, I will go first, um, and, and after this also, we're going to do Rummage for the Rotten for listeners. So go ahead, throw in your votes now. Who do you think is going to be the Rotten, <laughs> myself or Matt? Uh, let us know if you either, you're the Rotten. Anyway, two cents. Let's start here. My reaction to the film was, oh my gosh, I can't believe I finally watched the movie. I, I even now it's like I've watched the entire Dune movie. Like it's that that thing has happened that I've been waiting for. And in the movie theater, I just remember being like blown away. Like, wow, this this film visually is just incredible from the production design and the cinematography. I love the way they use the IMAX format. Like it just captures, I feel like I'm repeating myself, but it, it captures this significance around the story of Paul in a way that really, really makes sense. Especially being a fan of the book. I was amazed by the performances that I, you know, I, I kind of had a little teaser with the IMAX event. And, and so there was a lot of things that I was ready to expect, but I was still blown away by how grand it felt and how Hans Zimmer, his score was just knocking my socks off the entire time. I felt like it f- matched the film and the story so well. I, I already said the performances, the production design. I saw this fantastic review that I wish I was smart enough to come up with where someone was saying, I do not want to know how Dune was made. I, I don't want to see any behind-the-scenes clips. I don't want to see a making-of documentary because it feels like Denis Villeneuve found a way to travel into the future and actually go to the planet Arrakis and just capture these actual individuals who are experiencing the story of Dune. And I read that, and I was like, that makes so much sense. Like, like There was so much of it when I was watching it that didn't feel like, oh my gosh, I'm watching a movie of a made about a book that I really liked. It felt like, oh my gosh, I'm watching the events of this story that I love. And which was amazing to see. Um, yeah, it, it, yeah. I was just blown away. On top of that, I, I totally nailed where the movie was going to end. So the movie's divided into two parts. 
And uh, when it ended, I, I was like kind of looking at my watch like, oh, am I going to be right when it ends? And then it ended and I was both like excited that I got it right and then also devastated. Like, oh, come on. Like, <laughs> I want so much more. And uh, it was just, yeah, it, it was really exciting to just be there in the theater watching it and be amazed by it and really blown away. I love, f- for fans of the books, uh, and, and also just the story in general, not just the book, I should say, you can understand this from the film as well. There is a, a, a heavy difficult and really sad story around the character of Paul. Like this isn't the most glorious, super exciting story, particularly this first half. And I love that they didn't shy away from that and actually like really, really leaned into that. Um, Other things that, you know, if you know the story of Dune, things like the voice or the way that they use their increased mental capacities and and how that is such a big part of the story. I love how that was portrayed visually because that's really hard. For years, people have said Dune is unadaptable because so much of the story is within Paul and other characters within their mind. Um, and, and so the way that that was portrayed, I was just blown away with. Um, yeah, that was probably way longer than two minutes, but whatever. The, uh, the, I just, I am genuinely blown away and it, it still to this point feels unreal. Like I've actually experienced this thing. It's here. It's, it's actually a reality. The things I've been hoping for is real. Uh, and it's just exciting. So anyway, Matt, the floor is yours. All right. So here's, the first compliment that I can give Dune, uh, based on the schedule that I had, I had to watch this on HBO Max. And the first compliment that I will give it is the scope, the cinematography, the music. I have to now go experience this in theaters because it is 100% gorgeous. And I need to experience the theater aspect of seeing this movie. That is how great this movie is. The other compliment that I will give it is somebody who knows nothing about it. And Harrison, you talked about the intricacies of the story of Dune. Never once as somebody who knows nothing did I feel lost or that I did not understand how this story was being told. This is, without the spoiler, is as close as I can say a masterpiece with a few minor very minor pacing issues that I have. This is as good as it gets in cinema to me right now. I am shocked by this movie. I will. The, the worst thing that can come from this is if he does not get to do part two, I will be devastated if we do not get to see this played out. It is an achievement on Every single level. I'm going to stop there because, man, I I would not shut up about this movie at work today. I am <laughs> I am all in on this thing. It's it is amazing. Yeah, I that's awesome. I it like fills my soul with joy <laughs> because so I went to the movie with my wife and her sister. Um, they were excited to go with me. They were incredibly supportive. I mean, they have no understanding of Dune whatsoever. Um, They're also not huge movie fans, so they were just incredibly supportive to go with me. And the entire drive home from the theater, which is like 20 minutes, and for like half an hour when we got home, I was just explaining it to them. So like, like, wait, what about this? What about this? And so I was nervous. I was like, oh my gosh, like, is it not there? And so this uh, for for 24 hours, I've been waiting like, oh no, is Matt going to love it or is he going to hate it? Like, did I set him for failure? Because uh, you had mentioned to me that that you wanted to see it because of the IMAX reaction that I had, so I 
yeah, that just feels my soul. <laughs> so after that, you know, just just loving two cents that we have, we're probably just gushing over the film. Let's guess who we think is going to like it the least with Rummage for the Rod. Uh, so like I said, this is where we guess who we think is going to like it the least. At the end of the episode, we will do a reveal of the Rotten, where we each rate it out of five reels in honor of Matt's show, carrying something over from his show, and to see who is the Rotten, who likes it the least. That If both of us rate it five out of five, just as a scenario, then we both are the Rotten. So, I mean, that's kind of weird, but that's the way it's going to be. So, I'm going to guess just... And I'll say this, and this is so weird to say, like it almost feels like poison coming out of my mouth. I think that I'm going to be the rotten for the reason of I love the book. And I think that that in everybody's explanation is that the the book's always better than the movie, which I think I have a strong argument that that this is maybe the exception to that rule. But I think having such a love for the book makes the experience a little bit different than you not not mm-hmm. worse by any means and and so that may allow me to find a little bit more fault in it than you would but i think it's going to be like one of those scenarios like five out of five but i'm like 4.8 or whatever you know like and that just by a slim margin makes me the run uh but what do you think you know i i felt like it might be me by the smallest of margins just because of the few pacing issues that i have with the movie um so I, I'm going to say that it's actually going to be me. But again, I think it is by it, it's it's going to be razor thin here with what's going. It's going to be tomato, tomato at the end of the day. Yeah, I think. Really? Really? Yeah. So I, I'm excited. We'll just get into the episode here. This is where spoilers are going to come in full fledged. Uh, so uh, yeah, yeah, this is one of the I, I always feel. A total side note, insight into my brain as I record episodes for The Basement Binge. Whenever I'm like, okay, we're done with two cents, time to reveal the spoilers. I like keep talking in a way and then I'm like, well, someone who hasn't seen the movie could have listened to that and would have been spoilers. I'm like, what's the point of dropping a wall for spoilers and then like not talking about it? Anyway, I've, this is one of those films that like it's pretty much impossible to talk about without spoilers. So, so yeah. spoilers, let's move on to the next segment. Pick your poison. Uh, real briefly, we're going to give the Basement Binge rating for the film, which is based off how we would interact with the film after this initial watch out of four options instead of like a stars or percentage something. Uh, the four options are very simply to never watch it again. That's self-explanatory. To stream it, which is it's on a service you're already paying for and you're mainly just looking for something to watch. Like you just, you just want to watch something. You're browsing through Netflix and it's there. You'd be willing to click on it. Above that is to rent it. In the right circumstances, you pay a few dollars to watch it again. And the top of the list is to buy it. You know, Blu-ray, digital, whatever. Watch it as many times as you want. Be willing to pay the full price for that. I will let you go first, Matt. To pick your poison. All right. So pick your poison. I Please, I hope this isn't a cop-out. You need to go with every single option other than never watch it again. If you like this movie, it needs to be supported in every single way possible. You need to subscribe to HBO Max to stream it. You need to rent it off of whatever service you have. Rent it through Google Play. Rent it through Voodoo Voodoo or whatever the heck that movie service is is still available. And then go and buy a copy of it on Blu-ray and on 4K. I don't care. Um, If you like this movie, we need to support this movie to get part two. Go see it in the theaters, buy it, stream it, rent, 
everything you can do to support this movie to get it to make its budget back and to green light a sequel that's what needs to be done oh yeah that is probably like the best pick your poison of the entire two years the basement binge has been a thing that was awesome um i yeah i'm right along there with you i know this is a movie that i'm gonna watch again so obviously i'm gonna buy it but but for listeners of the show way beyond just the the pick your poison rating if this is a movie that you liked and you're listening to this episode and you want to get a part two like all of us do, watch it on HBO Max again. If you went and saw it in theaters and you don't want to cop out for another ticket, watch it on HBO Max because genuinely Warner Brothers is paying attention to how it performs on HBO Max. And although it may not contribute financially to the film in the way box office was, it does matter in Green and Light in the sequel. So I'm planning to watch it again on HBO Max. So Anyway, yeah, I'm just any any way I can watch this movie, I'll watch it again. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Again, I'm I'm going to go see this in theaters, and I will probably then check it out again on HBO Max. I'm, whew. Yeah, this this is one of those moments. I I have been I've kind of had to eat my words, but in the past I had been kind of vocal against this whole HBO Max thing. And this is one of those moments where I'm really grateful for it, where I can rewatch this as much as I want for the next month. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. So anyway, so we picked our poison. Obviously, we're going to see this movie again. I don't think any of you wasn't was surprised. So let's move on to the next segment, Live Up, where we will have a little bit more to talk about. So Live Up, especially with being a brand new film, is where we talk about our expectations for the film and you know, kind of what they were. And then, aptly named for the segment, was it able to live up to those expectations I'm particularly curious to hear your expectations, Matt, having known nothing about the story or, or just like anything. So what what were you expecting, if anything? You know, I I started this movie. I I don't know what I was expecting because there was a lot of things going through my head. One, I got nervous because I will say that I mentioned it. I wanted to watch this movie because of your IMAX review. And then I got myself kind of psyched out because I respect your opinion a lot. You know, one of the things that, you know, we we talked about was you reviewed Venom, Let There Be Carnage. And while I didn't necessarily yeah. agree with your review, I like the movie a lot more than you do. I love how you articulated why you weren't a fan of the movie. So when I started to think about like, oh, God, I want to see this because of his thing. I was like, am I psyching myself out too much where I'm thinking more than I should about what this is going to be? And I'm going to go in like, you know, without a clean slate. And then for some reason, and I don't know if you ever saw this, and I would love to hear listeners thoughts about this. I thought of John Carter of Mars and what a (laughs) critical bomb that was. And I felt like this was something similar. Like, do you adapt this in the right way? So I didn't know what to think. And I didn't know what my expectations were. But 15 minutes into this movie, I knew I was watching something special. And it never stopped, regardless, again, of a couple of things that we'll get into with the pacing that I feel was a little off. But never once did I think, like, this is not a remarkable feat for cinema. Yeah, well said in so many ways. It that's so interesting to think about because when in the IMAX preview that I had, we got to see the first ten minutes of the movie, mm-hmm. uh, which was sweet. And of all parts of the movie to make, that's the easiest part. 
You know, like it's super exciting. It's incredibly well made, but that's the easiest part of the story. So my expectations kind of going in was like, okay, I, I know what the first 10 minutes are. I, I like literally, I know exactly what to expect. But after that, I have no idea. <laughs> and is that's where it gets hard. Is it going to flop? You know, uh, but I, I had hopes because of how good those first 10 minutes are. I, I really believed in Denis Villeneuve and, and how he was going to be able to adapt it. And uh, so I had just high expectations. I, my biggest expectation, probably the biggest part of the book was, it, the, the biggest part of the book in every way is it, the increased mental capacity that these individuals have, particularly the character of Paul and, and, and like this foresight ability that he gains and the way that both the Bene Gesserit sisterhood and the Fremen believe he's like their Messiah right. because of his abilities. And, and that is such a huge part of the book, particularly that moment in the tent when he's, you know, like freaking out. <laughs> uh, he had in the book, he has a, a really, really intense vision and it's written so well that I was, ex I, I was thinking, how, do, how do you portray that? How do you portray that? How do you portray that? And my expectation was when it gets to that scene, I know I'm going to be blown away. Like, I, I don't think I can properly expect what that scene will deliver. Uh, and it, it, to answer the question of the segment, it lived up to it in every way. Like I said at the beginning, so this is the first experience I've had with like a book that I really care about that was adapted. So like I never read the Harry Potter books, so I just saw the movies. Um, Hunger Games, I had read the books, but I like I enjoy them, but I didn't like feel a passion for them. I was like, oh yeah, I read the story. Like now I'm just gonna go see the same story in a different format, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I, I never like had a care for a book and and then seeing, oh, it's gonna be told in a different format. Um and so I, I was just like, it was just a completely new experience for me to be like, almost I, I felt like I was kind of on the inside scoop. Like, I know what's happening. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was weird. It was really, really weird for me. Uh, but it, it was also just amazing to see like how good of an adaptation this is because there's, there are genuinely a lot of things that they had to cut from the book. In fact, one of my favorite moments in the book that I was talking to my sister about because she went and saw it. She lives in a different city. And I called her afterwards. She's like, I was sad that it wasn't in the movie. And I was like, me too. <laughs> but then I thought about it. And I was like, well, no, that, that, would, that wouldn't work in the movie. Like, th this isn't word for word translation of the book. This is a movie. And that wouldn't work in the movie. And, and it's just a really incredible adaptation. And I'm just, I'm blown away. So yeah, I think if I could, that's a, that's a hard balance to strike is knowing what you can take away from the book because it would not translate right. Because, you know, if you have fans that are just so passionate about the book, they're going, you know, again, how do you strike the balance of this is what we can take out, but still tell this story correctly so that fans of the book can still be excited and think we, you know, were, you know, faithful to the book and people who know nothing about the book can say, oh, well, I get that. and. That's one of the things that lived up. I don't understand how they did such a good job of making me feel like I already knew these characters. The performances in this movie are unbelievable. They make you feel like you already, I know nothing about this family. I know nothing about these people. And yet I felt connected to them through the performance, through the dialogue, through the camera work, for God's sakes. It's Again, it's an unbelievable feat what he accomplished here. Oh, oh yeah, I completely agree. It, because 
that was another thing I was talking to my sister about. It, it, the Lady Jessica, for example, that's a character in the book who I really loved. And, and, and although I didn't totally understand the character, because again, I've only read the, the one book. I do want to read the others. I just haven't yet. And, but I watched the movie and I had a greater understanding for her. There, there were new experiences with that character that felt so familiar and so new at the same time. On top of that, one of the things that was always, just because I think that I, I emotionally more impacted by films than, well, actually, I shouldn't say that as a blanket statement. I'm normally a bigger fan of movies than I am books. And so it, it was one of the things in the book is that I never like felt like a, uh, the family unit a ton. Like it was there and I, I loved it. But watching the film, like I felt like this was a genuinely like a family, the three of them. And I was impressed with that. Yeah, no, I am incredibly impressed with that family aspect because one thing that they did that was surprising to me, because usually you get the father that is pressuring the son and it, it, it was just so much acceptance. And the line that was delivered with, well, what if I, I don't want to rule? I'm maybe not getting that exactly right, but it's just then you'll be exactly what i like you'll only be what i ever needed you to be that's my son i was like okay um you nailed that perfectly just uh, a father with responsibility but also wants his son to have his own path i thought that was incredible like that right there might have been exactly where i was hooked on this family and cared about what happened because it felt like a family that cared about each other and just wanted what was best regardless of how they grew up or what that, what their title means. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really agree with you. There, there's a line after um, Paul like survives a little hunter seeker that comes out of his wall. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. So if you don't remember Paul, they're in their new house on Arrakis and he's in his room and kind of mind his own business. And then this little device comes out of the wall uh, that is there to kill you. And he narrowly avoids it. Uh, I don't know how much of this came across in the film for listeners, but it it tracks you by movement. And so he has to hold like perfectly still and, and just literally narrowly avoids death. And uh, the line that comes after with the Duke is getting really mad. And he, he yells, they tried to take the life of my son. And in the book, it's a great moment. It always worked well. I always loved that about the Duke, but I never like felt it like, I didn't feel the emotion in that moment. So when um, the Duke here, played by Oscar Isaac, when he delivered that line, I, I felt it like they tried to take the life of his son, and that means something to him. And I was just, I would, to have characters that I've loved for so, not so long, for, yeah, yeah, long enough, that I felt like I knew really well, to see new things about them was just really impressive. Yeah, it, again, it felt like he he was upset and emotional because his son was in danger not because there wasn't going to be somebody to you know lead his people when he was done leading his people it was no this is my son you went after him like i don't care that you went after like hierarchy or anything like that you you went after my family even when he's talking to his wife about and, and this is maybe one thing that i would maybe i'd appreciate it even more if i read the book when they're talking about the fact that she gave him a son, um, you know, even there, just like the care that he has for what that means. And 
you know, when he says, uh, sorry, Harrison, uh, help me out with how he says the line to him. Like, would you protect our son? Like, oh yeah. And then he says, I'm not asking his mother. I'm asking the Benny Jesuit. Right. Um, cause again, I felt like they did a really good job cutting across the movie of what, you know, she means to them and that faction, I will call them. But I am sure there are things in the book that dive into much deeper detail. Like you said, there's three different sections that explain you know, yeah. these, you know, these elements of the universe, but still, even so there was such emotion there that, yeah, no, I'm, you have two sides of you and I'm, I'm asking this side that could potentially hurt our son. And like the fact that he had to even think that you could tell was emotional for him. He doesn't want to, but based on what has happened, there's just, he has to ask the question. Yeah, I I loved that scene as well. I'm glad you brought it up. I, I thought it worked really, really well. And I also want to bring up how he he continually expressed the Duke how grateful he was that she gave him a son. So little insight. Hopefully this isn't gonna like spoil this doesn't spoil the book in any way if anyone doesn't want the book spoiled. The Benny Jesuit sisterhood that Lady Jessica is a part of is a faction of women who are really powerful and have increased mental capacity. That's why they're able to use the voice. One of the things they can also do is control their genetics within themselves. So they are able to choose when they're pregnant if it's a boy or a girl. And as part of their faction, they are only to give birth to girls until like the chosen time. So she was supposed to give birth to a girl and rejected it because she loved the Duke so much. Like, like she betrayed centuries of work that this sisterhood had been a part of in birthing girls to love the Duke and give her a son. And, and, and the way that they can, he continue to express that, like, although you don't extend, may not understand that to extent I just explained in the movie, you understand that it means something to him. And it's just, again, an incredible balance of making it mean, like when he said that, I was like, yeah, like she gave him a son and like I understood it with the experience I had and then you watched it and with the experience you had and you're like, he's grateful he has a son. And it, what a difficult line to walk that they walk so precisely. Yeah, there's and they did touch on it um, that she was not supposed to do that. I, I think, again, they did a fantastic job for, you know, a book that you said is massive to be able to figure out what to put in and how to make it translate. Few movies actually really pull that off when you look at the books that been have been adapted in this scope. Not a lot of them have worked to the degree that I feel this movie has. So, uh, it really, really good job. And again, just bringing the, the compassion of the Duke on the screen as well, where, you know, he gives his, you know, he gives his word of, well, we'll never hunt you. Like we'll never come after you. All we're doing is we're going after spice and that's it. Everything else is yours still. Like we're not going to do anything other than what we were sent here. And you be like, you believe him like, boy, I, Oscar Isaac, man, he's he is slowly, not slowly, but he is just creeping up on my radar 
of top actors to watch. And I'm so excited to see him in Moon Knight. And just I I cannot wait to see more things with him because, man, he's he is a talent. Oh, he is. He's phenomenal. I want to talk a little bit more about what you said about how they showed the compassion that he had. The scene that, or not scene, the section in the book, I'm not going to talk about too much, that both my sister and I are like, oh, I'm sad that wasn't in the movie, is this pretty extended scene that would probably be like 30 minutes of runtime that shows the Duke coming to Arrakis and doing away with tons of traditions that past leaders had had there that were kind of just like a sign of their leadership and rank. And he just immediately does away with them and gives to the people in need. And you just see... He just comes in and disrupts years of tradition to be compassionate to people. And and that scene is not in the movie, but I thought that they portrayed that character, that he's a type of individual who would do something like that. That that when his guards and Gurney are so adamant that people don't bring in their knife and they don't get close to him, you know, he's always like, right. it's okay, it's okay. Like he... And, and th- th- although, again, that, that part of the book isn't there, they, that character is there consistently. And it, it's just really phenomenal. And again, to me, the story that revolves around Paul kind of happens because the Duke is such a good person that people are loyal to him and that threatens the Emperor. And so he kind of wants to take him out. And I understand that part of the story so much better after seeing the movie, which I, I, I didn't really understand how much of an individual who people would want to follow he was. And now I'm like, yeah, sign me up. Where are we going? I'll go with you. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, not only, you know, will they follow him and things, but they feel, you know, when the, you know, when Paul does survive the attack and his, his head um, is going to like, he's, telling him like here's my resignation like consider this you know he's like you would leave like you would leave now um you know just again like not i I don't feel like it was in a way of demeaning him but when he's like the hell with your honor like like you need (laughs) you need to just put that aside and you need to you need to help me and we need to get this done um and the guy's like immediately just, yeah, okay, to, to hell with my honor. Like, I'm I'm going to do this for you. Like, I'm still I'm still here. Yeah, it, fantastic characterization. I, I am really curious. I want to ask, though, you know, in, in the aspect of living up. What? I want to phrase this the right way. When I read the book. Again, major spoilers if you're still here. Uh, the Duke dies very quickly. It's a very devastating story. Like the family goes to Arrakis. They're hoping for something good. And before they can really get themselves going, their entire life is destroyed. And the Duke dies through horrible betrayal. And, and I remember reading that in the book and just like, he died. What? He, he's dead. Like, and I, I was just shocked dumbfounded by it because i love that character so i'm curious in the trailers and like in the marketing oscar isaac and the duke is such a central character uh for obvious reasons they don't want to hint that he's gonna die so i was curious what was that like when that happened in the theater yes or i guess in the theater when you were watching it. you know here's where i stand on that i had thought potentially he would die in this movie 
um, based on the dialogue with his son, and, and you know, you'll unleash find his way to that path. Um, I thought that was foreshadowing of the fact that, that he would find a reason to want to lead and to end up being a leader. Maybe not of his people, which I think we're starting, you know, we're seeing here, um, but of multiple races of people. So I, I had anticipated that he might die, not when he did, and certainly not the way that he was betrayed. But it wasn't shocked to me that it happened. It was more devastation, which I love so much more than being like, oh, my God, I can't believe they did that. The fact that he was betrayed and the way he went out was just like, again, I I don't know anything about Dune, but I already felt so connected. Like, I felt like someone literally just like punched me in the ribs three times and like broke one of them when I knew was like he <laughs> was on his way out. I was like. Um, like I cannot believe this, but at the same time, I appreciated where I thought it was going to take the story and the characterization of Paul for me and the way that he takes his father's death and the way that he uses that towards the end of the movie, man, I just. I again, I'm so blown away by what they have accomplished and the characters in this movie. I, I have to have part two. That's again, I, I will go back to that. Like, yeah. I will be devastated if I don't get to see this journey's end. Yeah, it, it is so interesting to me how not interesting. It's amazing to me how this just works so well on every level, whether it's the devastation that you so immediately feel for the Duke's death or everything that's going on with Paul and Jessica having to flee into the desert and Paul's reaction to his father's death and the, the Benny Gesserit sisterhood and how like little we understand them, but also like clearly understand who they are and, and, and like the Fremen and just, just everything. These are people that I understand more than when I read the book. And, and I was not expecting that. Like I was expecting like little things that I about the characters that I liked in the book to be just peppered in the movie, which of course that was true, but I connected more with these characters and saw more of them and their emotions than I was able to capture from reading the book. Like the, I was just, there, there were two times in the theaters where I was just about in tears, not because I was like really sad, but like, this is this is gonna sound weird, but like the emotion I was feeling was just so strong that like the only reaction was to cry. If that makes sense, like I, it, it was weird. I, I didn't cry, but I was pretty close. And I was like, why am I crying? Like this is weird. But it, it was just the, the emotion was so much, and I just I would never would have expected that uh, from this movie. And I'm yeah, no, I 100 percent agree. I had moments like that where it wasn't sad, but like. I welled up because it was the story that was being told was like to sound, I don't know, cliche, corny, whatever word somebody wants to use to describe it. The story was beautiful. It reacted, it evoked genuine emotion that I was like, I cannot believe what I'm watching, what I'm seeing, the scope of the world, the, again, we'll say cinematography, the camera angles, like, 
everything about this when you like film is gorgeous to look at. Everything about this movie is done to invoke a reaction of the senses of emotion, everything involved, even the score. Every single scene has a score that fits perfectly. Even the fight at the end where it has no score for part of it, much like the Dark Knight Rises where Batman fights Bane and it's just the two of them hitting each other. This has a very similar scene where it's just two people and the fight going on. And then the score kicks in and it's like, yeah, the score needed to kick in right then and there. We needed to feel the weight of the two of them fighting hand to hand. Like, again, everything about this movie is made to invoke emotion. Yeah, and it's when I, because I just completely agree with everything you just said. When, like I said, I saw the 10 minutes of the movie. In addition, for the IMAX preview. In addition to that, we also saw like the scene, not the entire scene, but a section of the scene when Paul and the Duke in the ornithopter go out to see the spice mining for the first time, and then the sandworm eats the thing and they save the people. So we saw that scene, which uh, the opening and that scene, both fantastic scenes, but they're not like really, really like emotional scenes. Uh, They're just kind of like big set pieces, big, not not action, but you know, that. There's not a lot of emotion right there. There is, but it's it's not this key thing in that scene. And so it was interesting to get everything else and and be impacted by how emotional this was. Again, because reading the book, I I was almost just caught up in like the adventure of it all. Like, oh my gosh, this kid is on a planet where there's sandworms and he's he's living in a still suit and his eyes are blue and like like you know and. and I didn't get caught up in like, wow, this is a devastating journey he's on. And it's also a really hopeful journey. And it's it's sad and happy. And, and it just is full of so much emotion. And it's also really amazing to see how that also from the movie carries over back to my knowledge of the book and makes those experiences richer as well. And, and you can just tell everyone involved loved the story that they were telling and wanted to tell it the best they were, whether it was an actor or the person holding the boom mic, <laughs> they were going to do the absolute best they could. And it, and it, it delivers. It really just delivers. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the key word is it delivers. Yeah. And, and uh, for a film that had so much pressure on it, 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 it lived up. So I don't, I don't have anything else really to add and live up unless you do. No. Um, again, I, I just, what an accomplishment. <laughs> yeah. Oh, actually, I do have one thing that, just because I don't know where it's going to fit anywhere else, I, I want to ask you what it was like. So, like, the Baron, the Harkonnens, the bad people, if you will, the, the Baron is such an interesting character, and the Harkonnens in general. I'm, I was curious, what was it like watching them? Because for the longest time, even in the book, I just did not understand them or the Baron, or their involvement in the story for a long time. Um, And so I'm curious, what was that like? Yeah, I thought that, you know, they were really well done in the fact that you know that they're people. However, they're not your, like, over-the-top evil villains. They're very subtle. They're very strategic. 
and they work. They have an intimidating factor about them with like, again, without being presented in a way that feels hokey or cheesy or that they're trying too hard. They they feel just as natural to me as everything else in the movie. Why they're doing the things that they're doing, you know, the fact that like when they make the deal, like I give you my word, I will not harm them. You know that, you know, he's got the old, you know, fingers crossed behind his back. Like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to hurt him. Right. But it doesn't feel like that. You know, even though I knew he would say like, yeah, I gave my word and I won't personally harm them. Again, that's a fine line to pull off because you know that it's coming, but it still gives you emotion of like, like, oh, leave them alone. Like, don't <laughs> like, you know. Um, so, again, I just. He drew such a fine line on how to present these characters, how to write them, what to adapt. It's a rare feat. Again, I, I, I hate to repeat myself with that, but. It is a rare feat, I think, to pull off what they accomplished. I, I agree with you. To, to speak about the Baron a little bit more, there's a line in the book that talks about the Baron, and it says plans within plans. And that's the evil of him, is he is just a conniving genius who is evil. And he's intimidating for that reason, not because he's somebody who can throw you to the ground. In fact, he's <laughs> ginormous. You know, like, he is someone who just, he is thinking so much ahead. And he's all and, and, and like I you said it so well, which I have to repeat. He it is so natural to that character that we just talked about the compassion and kindness of the Duke. And he is the exact opposite. He is selfish and conniving and and disgusting. And that comes across so naturally that like this is weird to say, like that is a person living their life as disgusting and horrible as it is. It is. It, it's not some person in a costume being evil. It, it, even uh, the beast who's played by um, Dave Batista, just he is this unrelenting force who rules by fear and, and like hatred almost. And he's barely in the movie, but when he's there, like I'm terrified that he's going to like, punch me in the face through the screen at any given moment. And it, it doesn't feel like, oh, this is just Dave Bautista on the set of a movie screaming his head off. It's like, no, this is some loose cannon individual who is is terrifying, uh, who I am afraid of. And it just works Yeah, I so mean, well. talk about a guy who, you know, has certainly come into his own in, in Dave Bautista in these roles. And, you know, going from Drax to being in, in Dune and you know, he's he's another one that is sneaky, talented, I, I think. I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, maybe you don't watch some of the other movies that he's been in. But, man, he's he's got some talent and he really has worked to, you know, perfect his craft, so to speak. I, I admire him a lot, actually, for what he's what he's done. I do, too. I there was a uh, interview that I said, or I said that I saw, where Dave Bautista was saying that he felt uh, working with Denis Villeneuve on both Blade Runner twenty forty nine and, but especially on Dune, he felt like it validated his decision to leave re- wrestling to pursue acting. And, and I, 
and I just could not agree more. Like this is an individual who I would have never guessed could perform that way. Uh, and it, to to then to look at the extreme of Drax, like man, this guy's got range. Uh, what a great performer to to go along with everyone else in this, like Oscar Isaac, Rebecca Ferguson, Timothy Chalamet, Zendaya, uh, uh, Alan Skarsgård. Uh, what's his bucket? Aquaman. Uh, Jason Momoa. Like, are you serious? You're going up against these people, and Dave Bautista is standing out among those people, and it is impressive. That's all I've got for Live Up. Let's move on to the next segment here. Binge points, which is Easter eggs, details, trivia, behind-the-scenes stuff, whatever. Just just things we want to mention. Um, do you have any that you'd like you to know, add? I, I feel a little useless in this segment because not knowing anything about the book, but, you know, the the binge, like a binge point that I would like to bring up is just the absolute, again, binging. Go back when you watch this movie. And if you couldn't the first time, really just watch the subtle facial expressions on everybody in this movie when the Baron is talking, you know, when the Baron is talking, when the Duke is talking to his son, like there is such range. And although there's dialogue, also the dialogue is just accentuated by the body language, the facial expressions in this movie. And it's a really subtle thing, but I picked up on it while I was watching and I can't wait to watch it again to just dive even more to certain aspects about this. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you there, what you were saying about the performances and and, and the facial expressions in particular. Um, Rebecca Ferguson, I have to, to point out, because the character of Lady Jessica is a character who I loved from the beginning, but in particular at that moment with the box and the gom jabbar when he's, Paul is being tested with incredible pain by the Reverend Mother, in the book, it's all about Paul's experience. Like, it doesn't too much focus on Jessica. And so it was interesting when the movie cut to her standing outside the door, like, having an anxiety <laughs> attack almost. And it, it and, and that performance was just so powerful that it added such depth to the character of Lady Jessica uh, that I loved. And, and also, the way that Timothy Chalamet plays uh, Paul, like, he genuinely feels like a child in the way that he's so little, but also with great maturity and it's it's phenomenal um i don't have too many binge points either also just because like i've only seen the movie once and and you can only take in so much and this movie is delivering so much that there is there's little room to take in the binge points uh but what i will say is that just the production design in general i'm just blown away with like you read things and you imagine what they look like in your head and it seems like Denis Villeneuve and the production designer, who I'm so frustrated, I can't remember his name because he's phenomenal, uh, like went into my brain and took my imagination and then put that on the screen for what an ornithopter would look like, what a sandworm would look like, what the frame and still suits would look like, um, so on and so forth. What the space, uh, the, the, the ships from the spacing, uh, what is it called? The Spacing Guild, that's what it's called. The Spacing Guild and their ships, just how huge they are. Uh, I don't know. It, it was. It's so exciting to read something and imagine it for so long and then to see it on screen and, and feel like it did justice to your imagination. Uh, it's just exciting. 
I, I'm I'm absolutely blown away by this. I also love the way that they did the shields. Um, yeah, I. I it, that's such an interesting thing to explain if you haven't read the book. Like, how do you explain that to a viewer and it, without like a lecture, without just um just uh, juxtaposition? What the heck? Without exposition, um, and especially watching the older David Litch film, I I tried to watch it in anticipation for this, and I was so infuriated by it, I turned it off Ooh. after like 15 minutes. I, seriously, yeah, I, I was so mad. Uh, I've never done that before in a movie. I've never like <laughs> just turned it off and never came back to it. That was the first time. <laughs> so, but one of the things in the movie is seeing those shields, like it literally looks like orange, like Minecraft characters, like literally just polygons of a head, a body, arms and legs and it's like that's not a person in there and so both visually but also the way that they just use them i I was really really impressed with like what a difficult thing to portray that they portrayed really really well um i had another bench point that i forgot um oh i remembered okay so fans of the book um they will know that gurney who's played by um Josh Brolin, who also does a fantastic job. Like for the he's limited good. time he's on screen. I love Josh Brolin. Um, so in the book, he has a ballast, I think is how you say it. It's kind of like a guitar musical type thing. Um, and he's always reciting poems or singing music. Like he's really kind of like an artistic soul that always has a scripture hmm. or a poem or a song to relate to what's happening. And they kind of hinted at it throughout the movie. Like he recites one or two verses of things. Um, but I read in an interview that that Denis Villeneuve, they actually made a ballast that Josh Brolin carried around and they filmed with it and they just it just didn't make it into the movie and he was heartbroken by it. Denis was. He's like, I just couldn't find a way to put it in there. So if you are a fan of the book and you missed that, well, that's why they they tried. They just couldn't get it in there. But I don't, I don't have any other binge points. I, I, I wonder if this is... Have you heard anything? Because um, I would feel that you know you'd be researching this more than like what I would have. Has there been any talk about the fact that there maybe is more footage on the cutting room floor? Like they film those scenes and they just, you know, they took them out or, you know, cause this obviously with that book, you know, this is a movie that probably, you know, he might've filmed, I don't know, maybe he filmed three hours and 30 minutes worth of footage and they cut this down to two forty-five. Now, again, based on my, my feeling about pacing issues, I don't feel that, that would have necessarily worked, but has there been any talk already about more footage that was filmed, but ultimately they decided this was the proper way to, to cut this movie. Uh, and all the like research and, and things I've done about the film, the only thing that I've kind of seen is that one interview where Denis was talking specifically about the ballast and said, we made it, we filmed it. We just couldn't gotcha. find a way to put it in the movie. Um, and then just like, the trailer, which I probably watched uh, way too many times. And I th- like there's scenes that just were never in the movie. Um, and so I think that there's footage that they just uh, ha- had to edit a-, a specific way. And I think that there was just like a balance of filming it and and trying to just not that they were just filming, you know, coverage, but that they're like, OK, we're going to capture everything that we can. And then we're going to go in the editing room and we're going to find a way to put them together mm. in the right order. Um, and remove things when necessary. That that was kind of what the interview about the ballast that Denis was saying is that like there were so many things that he just he knew he had to do with Dune, and so they've made it and they filmed it, and then he came back and he's like, "We're making a movie, and I can't find a way to put it in the movie." 
Um, so I wonder if there'll be like a director's cut somewhere or something like that. I, I don't know. I mean, restore the 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 cut. the rage now. Right, yeah. Warner Brothers has seen some huge Blu-ray success with the Snyder Cut, so maybe they'll do that with uh, the uh, Denis Villeneuve Cut or whatever. I don't know. Um, I don't, no, I don't have any uh, other bench points. I'm good on that end. Okay. All right, let's move into our two last segments. Least and likes, or, or second to last. So least favorite scene, favorite scene. Let's go first with our least favorite scene. Matt, what is your least favorite scene of the film? And maybe this is where you'll get into yeah, those pacing so, issues you had. Uh, my least favorite thing is kind of the is the back end of this movie. It lost a little bit of steam for me when they are walking through the desert. You know, Paul ends up having the fight for his his mom's honor, so to speak. I felt like that's where it kind of slowed down a little bit too much for me in terms of what was happening um again it it doesn't take away too much but i felt like maybe again two hours and 45 minutes a lot of it seemed to go by incredibly quick but that last 20 minutes and again i i don't know where it would happen but maybe five ten minutes shaved off of this movie and I felt maybe it was a little more succinct at the end, especially the way for me that it ends. Not that I just like how it ends. Uh, I, I don't think it is, you know, um, I think it was a very good point, not knowing anything about the story to end the movie where it does. I just felt like it slowed down a little bit too much for my liking based on all the emotions that I was feeling. Um in that moment. And maybe that was to convey like what the characters were feeling now that I'm talking about it, like the pace slowed down to let you, the viewer understand that like they are now also, while well, they're going on this journey through the desert, coping with the fact of everything that has happened to the two of them. It was interesting as you were talking, cause I kind of agree with you that the, I felt like the movie had a fantastic pacing until the end. And it just kind of felt like a little mm. off. Um, and, and especially hearing you talking about it kind of solidifies that for me. So as you're talking, I pulled out the book and I did my best to find like the exact pages of things to show you like visually. So, okay. So here's the whole book, <laughs> right? Kind of big. Uh, this section of the book, this first section is the entire first part of the movie up until Woof. the moment in the tent. So that, that much is up until the moment in the tent. And then this middle section is everything else after that up wow. until the point the movie ends so then there's this <laughs> much left <laughs> so, uh yeah there you know just kind of visually to show you so it was kind of interesting because i felt like they were like jam-packing so much that happens like i said there were scenes i keep saying scenes sections of the book that were taken out that i really really loved in the book but i realized they can't serve the movie they they just won't they will make it too long. There is so much that happens in the book up until Paul ends up in the in the tent. Like so many, so many more things that the movie didn't even get anywhere near happen. And I felt like they were trying to cram so much in that amount of time. And it takes up the majority of the runtime. And then they get out and they wander through the desert and they end up with the Fremen. And then it's like, okay, we gotta end because we don't want to go further, because like where they ended is a natural place to end. If they went further, 
it would kind of feel like cutting off in the middle of something where now it's we we're not complete, but we're at a transition period and it makes sense to end. Yeah. I, I just really quick, if you don't mind, I like how it is really kind of book ended from the first kind of, you know, visualization that he sees. Um, I, I'm sorry. I'm losing her character's name in the movie. Uh, yes. Chinese, um, you Chinese. know, where he sees her as she's kind of like looking off to the side and the sun's reflecting on her. I I do like the ending. I think it's very, you know, I feel like it's a great bookend of this is what he saw in his visions. And this is, you know, the point where he's ending and like even kind of the little look on his face when he catches that glimpse of her and he's like, Oh, you know, like remembering his vision of her. Like, I, I think it's, very well done where they ended it um which again is like boy that's a hard thing to do to sit there and you know go well this is part one and how do you know where exactly do i end this so it feels you know natural like a natural breaking point again because not knowing anything about the book it, it just feels so natural that it it was supposed to end there to go on to part two yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and it's interesting knowing everything that is going to happen in part two, that kind of like slower section when it slows down and they're in the desert, that part is significant for all that follows in mm. part two. And, it, and if I'm summarizing it as best I can, everything that happens with his family being portrayed and then blowing up and the city being destroyed and all that and with the Harkonnens, that is all necessary to happen so that Paul ends up in the desert. So he ends up with the Fremen so that the latter part of the book can happen. So it's kind of like, if you want the end part of the book, Paul has to end up in the desert with his mom and become part of the Fremen. And in order for that to happen, mm-hmm. everything else has to happen. And, and, and so it's kind of like the movie's like, okay, we got to get these essential things out of the way. So we got to create the cause so we can have the effect that will cause a different cause so we can have the effect. And so it felt like they're like, okay, we got all this stuff out of the way. Let's slow down and kind of emphasize the importance of Paul being with the Fremen in the desert. And I think that's why it makes the film slow down a little bit in a weird way. I do like the way it ends, but I agree with you that it kind of felt like for how quickly everything else was going on, it's like, oh, let's walk through the desert a little bit, which I mean, right. like that's a key part of the book, walking without rhythm, but it, it at, the, at the speed the film was going in, I agree with you there, so. Anyway, I kind of interrupted you. No, that was that was all I had. Um, really, that is that's my only gripe, so to speak. Um, to even call it a gripe, um, it's it, it's a hiccup. Um, you know, on this amazing road that they took us on. Yeah. Um, my least favorite scene is actually the scene where Light Kinds, the uh, governor of the change, mm. uh, dies. And she's eaten by the sandworm. Uh, so also for listeners who haven't read the book, if I accidentally switch up she and he in the book, it's a he. So it's just kind of confusing in my brain. So I know that the actor is a she and the character in the movie is a she. It's just in the book, it's a he. Anyway, that I, I could be wrong. I have to reread it. I don't remember the character dying that way. The character does die gotcha. uh, in the desert. I just don't remember it being at the hands of a Sardukar. Uh, I would have to go back and reread it, but but that in the book, 
that that moment of death is really dragged out. Like it's almost like an entire chapter of light kinds hmm. dying and the experience that that individual has as he dies in the desert. And granted, that would not make sense without the other things that they took out of the first part of the the book that's not in the movie. So it, it's not that it does it fits the movie, it works within the movie, and it's devastating in the same way it is in the book, but there were um uh intellectual ideas and and emotional things about that moment in the book that I really liked that when they weren't in the movie, I was just a little bit disappointed, like, oh, I, I remembered mm. this differently. Uh, and that was one of them that I felt like didn't hurt the movie, but may hurt a little bit for fans of the book. One of the very rare moments that I was like, this is a necessary loss we have to take for the purpose of the movie. Yeah, interesting. You get what I'm saying. Um, yeah, so that was my least favorite scene. But again, it was still a fantastic scene. I, I, and, and to be able to try and like separate the two in my mind, I love the way that Light uh, or that Kynes just like pounded the, yeah. the dirt. I thought that was sweet. Or the sand. Um, so yeah, very, very well done. I also, I, I, they, they teased us with the sandworm writing. Like I, like we're about to get it in death. <laughs> and you know, I, I also thought that that pose was awesome with the, I forget what they're called. The, Oh, I don't remember the, they're the things that they use to, they have a really special name in the book that they use to ride the sandworms, like the handles that light kind of shoots out. Yeah. I was like, Oh, that's a sweet pose. And then, <laughs> Then they die. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so, what's your favorite scene then? Again, in a movie like this, it's it's funny because favorite scene. This is not, for all intents and purposes, it's not like this is an action movie. There's not a ton. It's not like there's a ton of action set pieces per se. There's things that happened in this movie. It's not to, in no way, shape, or form is this boring. Um, but a lot of it is is the dialogue and the emotion that drives the scene. So, you know, one of them I, I would like to mention a couple is that scene where he's at uh, the Duke is at the grave and he's talking to Paul and he mentions that he doesn't have to be a leader. I, I love that. That, again, right off the bat draws you into this family that I actually felt connected and cared for them. I, again, the scene where they are trying to um, what's it? Harvest the spice and the machine. The machine malfunctions, oh, yeah. and again, he just he dives into action. Where I don't care about the spice. Like we're getting them. Like we're getting them out. We'll figure it out because you know we're only supposed to be able to hold eighteen, and that would leave three left over. And he dumps supplies to be able to take the extra three. Um, you know that is fantastic. The scene where, again, I, I'm I'm going to have to apologize to listeners. Um, Jason Momoa's character, where he dies in the same way that he saw him. That's another great scene. Just the honor in him trying to protect them and going, you know, going uh, yeah. to lock the door so that he knows that they're safe. Those are there's so many of those. So I don't want to just continue to talk because I'll just rehash the entire movie again. <laughs> but those like those scenes again are the things that really create the sense of wonder for this movie and you caring about what happens because again you 
you have to care about what happens to the people in this movie because there's not a lot of those things to like distract you from maybe, you know, clunky dialogue or sometimes, you know, where movies they can get away with it because like, wow, look at the action that just happened. That, you know, that was amazing. That's not what this movie relies on. This movie relies on this. Well, the visual effects really drag you in, but it relies on the characterization and you caring about these people. Oh, yeah, I agree. You know, like, so also, I do not blame you at all for not remembering anybody's names. There are so many characters and their names Mm, are probably said like once. So, (laughs) yeah, yeah, I even reading the book, I had to have a sticky note where I had people's names down uh, and to remember <laughs> who was. So, yeah, I don't blame you. Uh, but Jason Momoa, Jason Momoa's character, Duncan, uh, when we were, I was talking to my wife about that scene when he, we were driving home and how he dies. And she was like, did he know that he was going to die? And I said, I don't know. But I bet he knew that he was going to do his best right. to protect Paul and his mom. And and while that was a sweet fight scene and it was filmed and choreographed and done really well and Jason Momoa is a beast, yeah, it's a great fight scene, but that scene isn't powerful because it's like, oh, look at that cool fight. It's, wow, look at the sacrifice of this individual and how it affects this other individual. And and like you said, it's it's not just a fight scene. It's a an emotional scene. Yeah, I, I think his thought was, you know, if I make it out, you know, I hope to make it out of here, but... I'm okay with not making it out of here because what the result is going to be. If I don't, I will have at least saved like Paul and his mom. So, you know, did he think he was going to die? Maybe not, but he also was at peace with if that had to happen to get the result. That's okay. And again, like that's, that's powerful to think about. Yeah, it really is. Um, I agree with you. There's, there's so many scenes that I want to mention as my favorite scene. Um, I'll repeat all the ones that you did at the grave when he's talking to his son, the spice mining scene where he saves individuals. That that's one of my favorite moments in the book. Um, and it was, and so at the IMAX event, they announced that we were going to see that scene, and I was giddy. <laughs> I like, I had a huge smile on my face, like, <gasps> oh my gosh! And so, so then we saw it, and then even having seen it coming back to the theater, I knew it was coming, and I was like, oh my gosh, here comes a great moment again, and it was even great the second time. Um, other moments that I really loved, I loved the first use of the voice. Uh, I had seen that again at the IMAX event, but I, uh, the voice is a huge part of the story. I'd imagine that in my head forever. What does it sound like? What would it be like? And, and the, the, the um, sound effects, the sound engineers and the sound designers, what a phenomenal use of it. Um, I, I loved it. Um, the, the other scenes that I really, really loved that I have to mention is the moment where J- Jessica and Paul escape from their captors, oh, the, yeah. the Harkonnens, and, and, Jess- and, and Paul uses the voice unsuccessfully, but then uses it again, and then Jessica uses the voice, and like how lethal those two are in the right circumstances. I, I mean, again, I've imagined that scene forever, and seeing it was fantastic. And, and Rebecca Ferguson plays this plays Lady Jessica with real, a lot of vulnerability and like a lot of tenderness and love. Uh, and so to see her go from that to like mm-hmm. lethal protector was, was, it was just both the, the performance of her was phenomenal. I, I really, really loved that scene. Again, the way that the voice is used so consistently and so quickly, like in the theater, I felt like someone was like punching me in the chest. Uh, I love that scene. 
The other two that I'll mention is the scene in the tent. I could talk about that scene a lot. I'll probably talk about it and fall in. And then the last scene I'll mention is the fight with Jameis at the very, very end. I don't particularly like the scene where I'm like, oh, that's a great scene. But that is a significant part in the Mm. story of Paul. And I am just incredibly impressed how they adapted that. And, and so for that reason, I really want to mention it, not because I'm like, oh my gosh, I love this scene, but I love how they didn't shy away from that moment and how they truly adapted that moment in the story of Paul. I was just, I was blown away with. Uh, I, I had guessed that we were, the movie was going to end right after that. And so the whole time I was, how do you, are they going to shy away from that moment and make it a little less than it is? And they didn't. And, and you mentioned this earlier, they let it go without a score and then bring it in at the right time. I was just, I was really amazed by how they 100% leaned into everything that that moment meant. It was fantastic. So, yeah, I, th- I don't think either of us would really pick up one particular scene. So, uh, let's get into the last segment here. This has been a little bit of a long episode, but that's okay. We just have a lot to say about the movie. So, last segment, Fall In. This is at the Basement Binge where we talk about uh, themes or messages or meanings from the film uh, as the tagline on the Basement Binge has movies made meaningful. This is where we try to extract important meaning, emotional resonance from the film. Uh, So I'm curious, you're new to the entire story. I'm curious if there were moments of this, of course, this entire episode we've been talking about emotion and the the family dynamics and all those things. What particular things you pulled out from this film and this story for the first time yeah you know again the one of the main things that you pull from this is is family and you know certain things in in this day and age and you know i think about it where i i will tell a a quick little story about how my son um we went to his younger brother's football game now his Mom had remarried um, and, you know, had another kid. And, you know, my son asked me, hey, do you want to go to his game and, you know, go go hang out? Yeah, great. Awesome. We have a really good relationship and everything's worked out for the best. But it was it's this middle school football game where, like, parents are, like, yelling at the kids, Hmm. like, like yelling at these kids or like yelling at the refs, like, come on, man, that how could you blah 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 and i'm like "Mm, how does this happen like legitimately how are you yelling right now um and it might sound silly but like thinking about that context and like these parents like yelling at kids for a middle school football game when let's face it i'm not saying anything rude but 99 percent of those kids are not playing football anywhere past just moving from the middle school to the high school. Like that's yeah. just how it goes. Uh, you have to be extremely talented and sometimes just blessed with amazing genetics um, to go that route. But, you know, talking back to, he doesn't need his son to lead. And if he chooses his path where it doesn't make him a leader, um, he's okay with that. He'll just be his son. And that's enough. Um, that's just really powerful being a dad myself of, I, I don't need you to be something for me. I want you to be something for you. And whatever that is, is, is good enough for me. Cause at the end of the day, you're still my son. And that's what matters to me is you're my son. Um, so that, you know, the message of family and how tight that family is, I think is really well done. Um, 
And it just, you know, it makes me kind of step back and think about stuff like that. So I really love that. And again, I I do love the fact that I don't have a huge knowledge base because of not reading the book or anything. But again, they don't shy away from portraying characters the way that they are. Some people in this life and in the real world are just bad people. And I'm not saying I like that. I like the art form of portraying that in this movie where it's not shied from. Some people are just bad. And in their minds, they're they're good. They're not they're not bad. Maybe they don't think of themselves as good, but they're just they're there. They're a person. This is what they do. I think that's, a again, a very hard thing to pull off to make those characters compelling and make them unlikable, but not in a way that it's typical, like, boo, you're a bad guy kind of, you know, nonsense. It, you try to think about why that character is the way they are and understand in a way that to them, what they're doing is not wrong. It's what needs to be done. I, I think he did an incredible job of showcasing that. Wow. Really well said. I, I, yeah, just I don't want to add anything to it because I think that was just really well said. So, yeah, I appreciate your insights. It, it's interesting to hear you share what you just did and then also be thinking about what I was thinking about. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and not that they're contradictory, but how they are two sides of the same coin of this devastating journey for Paul. Like, you just talked about how powerful this family unit was and how meaningful that relationship Paul had with his dad and how good of a relationship it was. And then his dad dies mm-hmm. while he's on a different planet and he literally has to go survive in a desert that has not enough water that you have to recycle your own pee and sweat through a, a suit that you have to wear so you don't die. And, oh, and there's also giant sandworms so you have to walk without rhythm. Um, and then at a moment's notice, you got to fight someone to the death. Like you're just, he goes from a, a, an ultimate situation where you can succeed and grow and be successful to just a desert, a, a plant. It's like the yeah. plant going from uh, a place of growth to a desert, harsh conditions where you have to learn to survive. And it's, to me, it's really interesting to see, to, to see, I'm trying to say this the right way. It's not, the words aren't coming to my head. The way that Paul recognizes the weight on him and the responsibility that's placed on him, rightfully so or not, and lives up to it. And whether, especially the second half of the movie is more so about that, whether that's a good thing or not is still up for debate, but he's doing it. And I think it's interesting that maybe that he's not doing it for his dad. Like, I never felt in the book or in the movie that Paul was doing anything, oh, because I have to do what my dad wants me to do. Like, like he was Mm -hmm. doing it for him. And, And he wasn't doing it for his mom. He wasn't doing it because anybody else told him he had to do something. He was doing it because he decided that's what he was gonna do. And... And and also because of the pressures around him, I think that was definitely a part of it. But oh, go ahead. No, I was gonna say. I mean, that's to me that's super um, evident when you know it's no, we have to get him off world, and he immediately just says no. 
the emperor sent us here and this is what i'm going to do like he's not doing that for again he's not doing that for his mom she wants him to get off world i he certainly didn't say like oh i need to stay because of dad y- you could have done that and that could have been maybe a little cliche no he's he's made a decision on his own for how he's handling this situation yeah, it, it's interesting to dive a little bit more into the book and talk about particularly scene in the 10 that I, especially with what you just said, I think is so interesting. So in uh, they they did express this in the movie. I'm, so this is totally clear in the movie. There is a lot of pressure on Paul from both the Fremen who believe him to be their Mahdi, the, the Messiah, which means in their language, the one who will lead us to paradise. That like they view him as a person who will fulfill this prophecy that they've mm-hmm. had. Like, talk about pressure. How old are you? Oh, and your dad's dead. Oh, also, these people think you're the chosen one. Uh, Good luck. On top of that, your mother rebelled against centuries of plans to birth you in hope that you would be the Kwisatz Haderach, which, again, is the chosen one for a different group of people. I, I mean, this is literally a word from the Reverend Mother. She says, one day a legend will be born. All of civilization depends on it. He is expected or hoped to be that legend. Like, oh, geez, I, that's a lot to live up to. And it's interesting to see how in the tent, he's, he's kind of like freaking out. Like he mm-hmm. sees the, the pressure and what it could bring. And is almost like heartbroken by it. Like, well, not almost, he is. He's absolutely destroyed by it. And in the moment where he yells at his mom in the book, it reveals it a little bit more where he realizes his family, both his dad and his mom, have been putting him through years of training so that he could be this individual. Right. And and at that moment, he's mad at him. And 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 like he says, like this is what you made me. Like what have you done to me? And then moves on from that and like accepts it. And it, and it's so weird how that is only able to happen within the extreme pressure he's under, but also within a family dynamic. Like to be right. able to look at his mother and. And sternly and rightfully so say, this is what you have made me. And then be able to mourn the loss of the, the, his dad uh, with his mother. You know, it's, it's so interesting how all of this just melds together in like this, this heartbreaking story where a family could have been something and they're not. And because they're not, everything else is going this direction now. Well said. J- just interesting things. So, um, the last thing that I'll talk about that I just think is really interesting that I thought I have not stopped thinking about for last night when my wife asked me, and I'm just going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here. She was asking me, so Jameis, the guy that, that Paul fights and kills at the end of the movie, he has a dream where he's told that he will find a friend that will lead him along and will show him how to do things. And that friend he sees is Jameis. And my wife was asking me, wasn't he supposed to be his friend? Why did he fight him? Why did he have to kill him? And mm-hmm. In, in the, the story of Paul is, and this is just one thing that I want to talk about because I think it's one of the reasons why Dune is is important. Is and I hope that people don't misinterpret it that the the Dune is like a white savior story, which we've had way too many of. That like, oh, we need this outsider to solve our problems. It's more of a criticism of that more than anything. That like, when you expect an outsider to come and solve your problems, look what happens to you and mm-hmm. to the outsider, and so. In that moment, it, in, in the book, it describes Paul when he sees this, when he gets the spice in the tent, it allows him to see the future. 
and but it's not like a clear path for him. He sees it as many different branches going different di- directions that cross, and he doesn't know which one is the actual direction he will go in. Mm-hmm. And so, in that, it, to me, it really portrayed that well. Where in one future, where maybe he wasn't the chosen one, he wasn't the Mahdi that they expected him to be. Jameis could have been his friend and could have truly showed him the way. But because he was this kid who was an outsider who came to their world who they didn't like. And now everyone's saying he's the chosen one. This one person isn't okay with that and doesn't want to trust him because other people say he has to be the chosen one. And so now an individual who could have been a friend is now an enemy. And it's just, and and it's heartbreaking that Paul realizes it in that moment when he has to fight Jameson and is carrying the weight of knowing in this moment, I'm losing someone who could be my friend because of the, the, the pressure that is on me. Um, And it's just like, it's it's so interesting to just like I've, I have not stopped thinking about that all day. I don't know why. Like, do I have some explanation of how that applies to me? No, but I just have not stopped thinking about it. So, what about uh, maybe I'm just way off here? So, shut me down. Um, what about the thought of the yin and the yang to that? That even though he's not a friend, he's still in the this instance by challenging him. It really does still kind of lead the way for him for his journey. Yeah, it it really allows him to become a part of the Fremen and further makes them believe in him as like their chosen one, which like if he didn't have that fight, if they would have just like let him live among them for a few days, who knows what would have happened. But having that fight and winning it and and makes him be someone that they want to be a part of them. Yeah. You know, yeah, and can I say too that uh, again when he asks like, "Is he toying with him?" and it, you know, is known like, "No, he's never taken a life before." Again, little things like that can be hard to pull off. Is not like, "Oh, of course he hasn't taken a life," and like they can over dramatize the scene where he's just struggling so bad. It felt like the right amount of like, okay, like yield, yield yield okay like it it felt earned that he came to the realization like okay i'm going to have to take his life in order to end this um again that can be a really tricky thing to pull off and it can come off as force but again just like everything else in this movie it didn't yeah, I, I agree with you. That that's why I mentioned that that scene early because it is in the book. It is just a heavy, heavy section of the book. Like he just barely narrowly escapes and thinks that he's going to have some success with the Fremen, and then he has to challenge this dude who people tell him is, is some incredibly successful fighter. Um, in the book, they're like in within the rock caverns with like listen with little light shining on them, and they're totally naked. Um, hmm. And so. It's interesting because he's also trained one of the trainings he received from his parents, which is so um, I don't know if you notice that the people who have like the black on their lip and then they they're like eyes roll in the back of their head. Yeah, thinking so they're a mentat, but just some history about Dune for people who don't know previous to the story of Dune, but within the world of Dune, the years and years ago, years ago, there was a war against the thinking machines, machines and computers had gotten smart enough that they were starting to rebel against humans. And so there was a war where the humans thought fought against thinking machines and they became outlawed. So instead of having computers, a person is trained from when they're young to become a mentat 
in essence, like a human computer. So uh, people, you know, like Duke and the Baron, they have their mentat who does their calculations hmm. for them. And uh, they're both just like incredibly intelligent people. So Paul is, has been training without knowing it to be a mentat. So he knows how to make consistent calculations of logic. And so the book describes this fight, like the actual fight in flashes. Most of the section of the book is describing Paul's thoughts as he is fighting and is making calculations. Is this something I can get out of without taking his life? And so, like you said, knowing that, that feeling that he's going through, um, to a different extent than than you do, not like not necessarily in a different way. I should say that's a better way of saying right. it. In, in a different way, I think they pulled it off so well because whether you understand the book like I just explained, or whether you're just seeing the movie for the first time and realizing that this is the first time this this poor kid is taking someone's life, it'd be really easy to dramatize that way too much. And instead, it's just a moment where this is a horrible situation, and he's in it, and he's making the best of it, and the best isn't very good. But he has to do yeah. it. And it uh, yeah, just, I mean, a really sad scene, but so well done. So, yeah, and I also just, this has nothing to do with Fallen. I just feel like it's the next thing to talk about after the scene. I love how the movie ends with Chani saying, this is just the beginning. Because it is. <laughs> like, I was right. It is. We need <laughs> like, uh, Yeah, so anyway. This has been a great episode that I've really, really enjoyed. So let's get to the seg bit and decide who is the rotten. Let's reveal the rotten. We're going to give it a rating out of five reels from Matt's show. Uh, this is carrying over from his show. Um, I will go first because I'm, I'm really curious what you think. Oh, I shouldn't have gone first because I don't, I don't know. I've been thinking about this for days. I, I've got it. I, I okay. had it as soon as the movie ended if you want me okay. to go first. Go ahead while I lock it in for myself. So. 100% no hesitation soon as the movie ended I said this is a five even with a small pacing issue at the end this is again I'm going to repeat myself a truly one-of-a-kind unique film that needs to be supported in every single way I did not expect I didn't expect to hate this movie I didn't know if I would like this movie but I will tell you that when I sat down, I never would have guessed that I would be in love with this movie. Wow. Well said. And you know, with that, I'm just going to log it in five as well. I was debating between five and four and a half because there's a part of me that's like, it, it, when I rewatch it, am I going to find some problem with it where it's not quite a five and, and it would be a four and a half and there's not like we just taught, spent like almost an hour and a half just gushing about this movie. What am I going to find that I don't like? It is a five. This is unlike anything I've really ever seen. It, it is incredibly unique. And I love the film. And I love how it accomplished adapting such a difficult story that I love and having characters that are amazing and being just absolutely memorable. Like, I, I think this is a movie that will not be forgotten in film history, in film culture, ever. Uh, we were walking out of the theater, and one of the individuals who, who I was just eavesdropping on was like, I think this is going to be this generation's Lord of the Rings. And while I like wanted to go up with him and disagree and be like, this is nothing like War Lord of the Rings, <laughs> I, was, I was like, okay, yeah, you're kind of true. Like, this is, everyone knows what the Lord of the Rings movies are. Like, that is a generational yeah. cinematic thing. And in this sense, this is definitely going to be that if we get part two which i'm pretty sure we're gonna get 
because uh, there's also like a Benny Gesserit spinoff series, which I was going to mention this early in the episode and I forgot, so I'll just mention it now. There's a spinoff series about the Benny Gesserit that's going to be for HBO Max. And when I first heard about that, I was like, how dumb. Like, come on. <laughs> like, just make the movie and like focus on that. And then after watching the movie and seeing that sisterhood in action in the movie, especially Lady Jessica, I was like, when does it come out? Where can I watch it? Right, so, exactly. Anyway, five out of five, I guess we're both rotten with a perfect score. What a coincidence. Um, <laughs> so th- thank you so much for joining me here for this. This has been a fun episode that I've been looking forward to. One, because I, I, I got out of the theater. I was going to mention this in Live Up and I forgot when. So many things in my mind. And I was kind of melancholy because I, was, I just, just didn't know how to feel. And, and last night, my sister-in-law, she asked me who was there with us. She's like, what would you rate the movie? And I said, four out of five. Because there was just like a little bit on me that's like, I don't know yet. Mm. Like, like the, I walked out of the theater and I didn't have one thing to point out as like a complaint. Like there wasn't a single thing that I had a problem with, but I wasn't like, oh my gosh, this, this is the best thing ever. And like, I love it. Like I just, I wasn't absolutely giddy about it, but I couldn't tell you why I should have reason not to be giddy, which mm. was a very weird experience. Uh, and, and so... I've been looking forward to this to be able to sit down with someone who's like-minded and whose opinion I value and be able to like flesh out what I actually think. So thank you for helping me get to the conclusion that it is a five out of five. Um, Yeah. Uh, Oh man. I I was so excited and so ready to just get done with work. My day's over and be like, let's talk. Yes. I've been looking forward to it. So (laughs) I, I really, really do appreciate being here. I know it's very late for you. Also, you had a day of work and you're still talking to me so i want to give you another chance to plug your amazing show matt goes to the movies actually before you do let me tell you listeners about matt goes to the movies obviously it's about movies duh you should figure that out and it's hosted <laughs> by matt you, you know really we're smart here so uh yeah matt goes to the movies is a fantastic podcast you can find it wherever you get your podcast i'll let matt mention anything else he wants but it is a fantastic show where if you i i can't remember where i pulled it up I think it's somewhere on your podcast that says, this is a podcast where I talk about movies because I like them or something like that. I don't remember the exact how you phrased it. And that is like the most accurate description ever. Matt likes movies and he likes talking about them and he talks about a way, talks about them in a way that's compelling to listen to. Uh, two episodes that I want to mention particularly, the Halloween Kills spoiler-free episode he had. It's like 11 minutes long. If you're wanting like a, a trailer, so to speak, for Matt Goes to the Movies, that's a perfect episode. It's really short to listen to in a short amount of time. And I think it perfectly encapsulates everything I enjoy about Matt Goes to the Movies, where he can clearly talk about film in a way that's not boring, uh, even for a film that I'm probably never going to watch because I'm <laughs> a wuss. Uh, <laughs> and the, the second episode that I want to mention is the Black Widow episode. Uh, I don't particularly like that movie. But that is genuinely one of my favorite episodes Matt has ever produced, just because the way he talked about him and Rob together talked about the film of Black Widow, but also how the film interacts within the MCU. And also just like film viewing in general was just like all the things that I care about and have interest in, they're talking about. And they're talking about it in a way that I really want to hear what they're saying. And and yeah, just fantastic episodes. Go check out Magos the Movies. Anything else you'd like to say about your show, Matt? No, I just, you know, I, I really appreciate that. That that show's a lot of fun. This has been a lot of fun. The The Halloween Kills episode was really fun because it's the first time I've done like a real 
like knee jerk. I got out of the theater. Let me put my thoughts down. Uh, I did get the chance to see the movie again, where I will do another uh, review with a lot of spoilers involved in it. So that's going to be interesting. But yeah, just, you know, if you hear me on this episode and you want to check, uh, you know, Matt goes to the movies, if you haven't given it a shot, um, I'd really appreciate it. Two episodes. I do want to point that I've got coming out um, that are tied into something pretty cool is I'm going to be doing G.I. Joe and G.I. Joe Retaliation um, that will be linked to a giveaway. So I'm excited to to talk about those movies because they're somewhat of a guilty pleasure. Um, yes. <laughs> um, I was um, um, so I'm excited to, to get those episodes out if uh, you want something to check out. And there's a little something in, attached to those episodes as well. That's That's pretty cool for me. So thank you, man. I appreciate it. Of course. I'm so glad you're here. I also, man, I forgot so many things. I had so many things to talk about. I forgot everything. Matt also especially is here because he was so nice to me that he sent me this book. Look how nice <laughs> this book is. He sent it to me in the mail. So yeah, maybe he'll send you something if you go listen to his G.I. Joe episodes, <laughs> which I, I cannot wait for because particularly the second one, if, if I remember right, is that the one that has Bruce Willis in it and The Rock? Yes, yes. Okay. That is such a fun <laughs> movie to watch. It is so flawed, but I'm going to have to rewatch those in anticipation of your episodes. So there you go. Matt goes to the movies. Great things already over there that you can go listen to. Great things coming. Uh, here at the Basin Binge as well, some Halloween episodes was just released. Nightmare Before Christmas. That was really fun. I had a guest, I had a lot of guests lately, from... Uh, <laughs> uh iran of all places he contacted me online and and was like the perfect guest for night at the museum that was such a night at the museum what the heck for the nightmare before christmas i should do the night museum at some point but yeah so how great halloween episode there was a ton of fun more coming very very soon uh everything that you could do to get in contact with the basement binge or matt goes to the movies is going to be linked in the show notes uh for this episode interact with us let us know what you thought about dune are we just crazy or are you as excited about this film as we are uh so thank you so much for listening thank you again matt for being here this has been a blast once again this is basement binge my name is harrison and i've been joined by the wonderful matt from matt goes to the movies that's all for now ciao ciao